All right, this morning we look at the idea, the truth, the promise that in the darkest times, God's grace still shines. And, you know, throughout history, good and evil, there's, there's been this ebb and flow, right, of good and evil times of spiritual renewal, followed by times of spiritual decay and corruption. And uh, it's just kind of a cycle, right, of times where um, you see righteousness exalt a nation and then you see sin uh, des- destroy that nation and it just continues. I mean, think about the 1500s. Uh, darkness was all over the landscape, right? I mean, spiritually, the church was corrupt. And yet, out of darkness, light, the Reformation, uh, comes along and a return to the Word of God. And you see the movement of the, the power of the gospel as it, it just moves across the land. Uh, God's working his plan. Uh, even in the darkness, there's light. Um, then we move to the 1700s. Now, around, you know, in the early 1700s, there was a philosophical movement, which you've heard of, known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. Uh, this is when uh, people began to think uh, less and less about religion uh, as known to what it was called, religion. Religion is not a terrible word, by, by the way. I know we put this thing up upon it like, oh, religion's bad. Religion's definition is a, ze- a zealous worship of God, a dedication to honor God uh, with all that we have. So um, the Enlightenment comes along, and the Enlightenment thinkers emphasize science and logic and that type of a worldview and downplay a worldview that bases its truth on the Bible and, and uh, Christian standards and so forth. In our, in our colonies during that time, uh, the middle colonies, Samuel Blair wrote this, Religion lay, as it were, dying and ready to expire its last breath of life. So that was the tone. That was the spiritual tone in the Americas, if you will, in the colonies. In the early 1700s, um, this, this pastor felt like it's dead. It's breathing its last breath. There is no more uh, faith. Um, nobody listens to the word of God anymore. But then in 1740, God raised up a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who unashamedly preached the gospel, calling men and women to repent and put their trust in Christ alone. Along with Edwards, you had men like George Whitfield and others who were used by God during this time, and renewal happened. As a matter of fact, we know it as the Great Awakening, and and a powerful movement of God's word spread through the land. And then what happened? Well, by the 1800s, you've got this downgrade again. You've got people moving away from God. You've got an apathetic attitude toward God. The darkness is seemingly taking over again. But then, by the 1800s, a second great awakening happens. And you have a spiritual revival again. And that affected even up towards our uh, recent history. This idea of the movement of the gospel and evangelism around the world and and. You saw the light of God's grace shining bright. Now today, we find ourselves, I believe, in a time of spiritual darkness again. Um, I think most of us would have to agree that, that, that if we're going to, to put any type of grade upon our world as far as spirituality and the gospel and God's word and how many people love it and abide by it, it's going to be a low grade. <laughs> Um, again, we're in a time where people discard in this postmodern, post-Christian world, and it's a time where they discard anything of absolute truth or any idea of God, 
and it's all about, again, what we want to do. So we're, we're seeing that even in our world, there's this, there's this moment, it seems, where the light of God's grace is flickering out. The light of God's word seems to be flickering out. However, folks, I mean, it's historically, we can take hope, not just that, that, that there'll be moments of God's grace prospering, but we know as believers who base our faith in the word of God that he prevails, that his plan is working out the whole time. So, so this is what we're talking about here today. You know, it, that the confidence a Christian has is that even in the darkest times, God's grace continues to shine. It is there. The light of God's grace is there. It's, yes, it, it, it's, it's flickering sometimes, and it looks like that light way at the end of a dark tunnel, but it is there. And that's what really the book of 1 Samuel and pretty much every other book in the Bible is all about. It's all about the idea that even in the darkest times, the light of God's grace still shines because God is working out his redemptive plan. Even using the dark times to ultimately accomplish his perfect plan. So that's what we see here in 1 Samuel. Now think about it. Again, we've already hit on this a little bit, but even in that history, it's a dark time, right? It's a dark time spiritually for Israel. They've turned away from the worship of Yahweh. They've incorporated pagan worship in their worship. And every man does what's right in his own eyes, the Bible says. There is no submission to an absolute truth. There is no humbleness under Yahweh, there is only pride and arrogance and consumerism. We want to worship God the way we want to worship God. And that's what's happening in the time that Samuel is born. And the priesthood, by the way, as we're going to see here in a moment, is totally corrupt during this time. And yet God is not shaken. He, he's not taken by surprise. Again, through the darkness, we see the glimmers of light shining Right? His grace is working, assuring us that he's quietly working to grow uh, his plan behind the scenes and, and, behind the scenes and accomplish his, his purpose. So that, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, we are covering quite a few verses, so let's just hang in there and do this together. But man, this is our foundation. This is our hope. This is where we stand, folks. This is the nitty-gritty, so to speak, of the Christian life. It's not about getting all excited. Although the songs we, we sing bless our hearts, they point us to Christ, they honor God, they glorify him, and the truth is there, and that's why we sing them. It's not about a feeling we get when we worship. It's not about this, this um, exciting, exuberant experience that we feel when we're together. That's good, and it builds us, but the foundation that we stand on in a dark world are the truths we're going to see today in God's word. So grab this. Thank God for his grace where he reveals himself this way. Let's notice what's happening here. We remember that Elkanah and Hannah visit the temple yearly. We got Penina, her co-wife, who has a lot of children. She has none. She's weeping bitterly. Penina adds to that stress by continually bullying her over that fact that she's barren. And yet she's at the end of a rope as they're there in Shiloh worshiping God the way they were commanded to worship God, they submit to that plan. They travel the six hours. They worship the way God told them to worship there at Shiloh. Even among the corrupt priests who aren't worshiping the way they should, 
And it's there that she's broken before God and weeps and cries out and says, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And God hears her prayer and he does give her Samuel. And she dedicates him. We saw last week that they returned after he was weaned. He's probably five years old, maybe five or six. And she takes him to that temple and leaves him there with Eli, the high priest. Now, here we are in verse 11. It says this. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And here's what happened. This is when they leave Samuel there in the tabernacle. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Wow. So here we have this young boy, uh, like I said, five, six years old, somehow bebopping around the tabernacle, ministering to God, doing something. It's this little, little young man, six years old, ministering to, to the Lord in the tabernacle. Now, this again reminds us, right, when all seems lost, when it seems the darkest, here's a little flicker of God's light, of, of his grace, shining, showing us, right, that there's a plan that is happening. This Samuel, by the way, this, this little Samuel, this, this, this glimmer of light, this is in the midst of the darkness. What does God do? When, it, when everybody's corrupt, the priests are corrupt, everybody's corrupt, God raises up a little boy named Samuel who is destined to grow into one of the greatest prophets the nation of Israel has ever known. And this pattern, by the way, this is it. This pattern of darkness being punctuated by glimpses of light are seen throughout this passage. And I like how um, it breaks down. Look at this, or listen to this. Um, verse 11, we just read. It's, a, it's, it's the glimmer of light, right? It's this, this beautiful picture of a, of, a, of a little boy representing God's work toward his ultimate plan being fulfilled. Then that's punctuated and contrasted in verse 12 through 17 with the liturgical sins of the priests, the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And then as our hearts are being so dis just angered by their sin, verse 18 comes along and we've got another flicker of light, Samuel's faithful service again. And then verse 22 through 25 contrasts that with the moral sins of these two high priests, their wickedness in the tabernacle. Then you're discouraged again. But then in verse 26, we see Samuel growing in the Lord. And then in verse 27 through 36, we see this awful judgment pronounced upon the wickedness of the day. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says Samuel was faithfully Serving. So again, it, you see this contrast, this division of here's, here's the dark time. Oh, but here is this light of grace. Here's the darkness. Oh, but here's the light of God's grace. It's not gone out. It's not going to go out. God's going to continue to work. He's going to continue to raise up and, and grow up his people to accomplish his plan. And that's our hope. That's, that's what we trust in. So the construction of this section is meant to remind us that in the darkest times, God's grace still shines. Now, let's look at this as, as we go on. Now. So we, we, we know that God has raised up Samuel for a purpose. To save the nation of Israel and ultimately bring about the Savior, Christ, through that people. But look at this, the dark time. Verses 12 and 15, as we describe these two sons of Eli, these, these worthless men. 
Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. So you see, it wasn't me just being mean to these guys. This is the Bible. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Ben Blyal in the Hebrew. That, that worthless, translated worthless men literally means useless, wicked, good-for-nothings in the Hebrew. That's what they were. Useless, wicked, good-for-nothings. They did not know the Lord. He's the priest. <laughs> the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there to worship. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Wow. Now, there's some things going on here, because if we look at the Levitical law, and we see Leviticus chapter 7, we see that the priests were already allotted the breast and the right leg of all sacrifices. God was already taking care of the high priest. Now, the right leg and the breast of the sacrifices was not the choice cut. It was more like chuck roast. They didn't want that. They wanted prime rib. The priest, that wasn't enough for them. They wanted the, the best meat. And so they brought this, uh, their workers, they sent their workers out to, to uh, select the finest cuts, right? And so they used this three-pronged, you know, pitchfork. <laughs> they would stick it in. And it sounds like it's random, but I, you know how things work, right? I mean, um, I think they could see what they were getting. Hey, no accident here. We'll take that. Thank you very much. What do you know? Prime rib. And the, and the idea was, by the way, that the fat, this is again Levitical law, the fat had to be burned first on the altar as a sacrifice. And yet these priests were saying, no, no, here's how we want to worship God. I, we don't really care about the Levitical law and what he laid down. We want that raw meat, fat and all. We want the good, we want it all. So they had a contempt for God's offerings. Look at the rest of this, verses 16 and 17. And if the man said to him, this is again the guy who these priest workers are coming to take the, 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 the best cuts of meat before they were even sacrificed to the Lord. And if that person said to them, well, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So you see that. The, the, the Israelite is saying, we know the Levitical law better than you. We're trying to honor God the way he told us to, and he commands us, burn the fat first. So do that, and you can have whatever you want. But the priest said, no, no, no. And if you don't give it to us, we're going to take it by force. Now look what the Lord said. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. I mean, they could care less about God's prescribed order of worship. It was all about them being satisfied rather than them honoring and exalting God. And, and I've said this, I get on this 
high horse uh, all the time, this, this, this uh, whatever you want to call it, rampant, this, this soapbox, there you go. But I think it's godly indignation, I would say, because many people today have no, no concern for how God has commanded us to worship him. They have contempt for the worship of God. You say, we have contempt for the worship of God? Yeah, I think so. I think we show contempt for the worship of God. You see, God is to be worshipped first and foremost, he said, in our worship. He is to be the prime focus of our thoughts, our songs, our preaching. Everything is geared toward his honor and his glory and his exaltation. And it's not about us. We are offering sacrifices to him. Sacrifices of praise and obedience and a hunger for his word. And, and we're here, yes, to be filled by his grace and, and instructed in righteousness. But all of that is for the purpose of ultimately glorifying him, not making us live our best life now. It's not about us leaving church feeling fulfilled and better to handle my job at work much better. That's not it. We come into the house of God to submit to his instructions on how to worship him and follow his order of service, not our preferences. And it just irritates me when I hear people say, I don't like the worship music. I didn't like that song. I, 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 where's this and where's that? And I, folks, that is being and showing contempt for the worship of God. We're, we're lifting ourselves up into the place where we want to be pleased, and we are not pleasing the one who is worthy of being pleased. That's the sin that's happening here. And, and I'm telling you, throughout history, it's happened through our world, throughout our world. And I believe it's happening today, where we have fallen into this dark time of spirituality, we're all complacent, we're all apathetic, and we're all selfish, and we're all seeking what's going to make us feel good. And we have forgotten the holy God who created us. It's just what verse 12 said. They did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. Again, many, many people in churches across the world, many, not just people, many leaders, many pastors leading and actually instructing, actually teaching people in the name of God don't even know God. They do not know the Lord. They just know some form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Therefore, making people twofold children of hell. This is a dark time. A dark time in the history of God's redemptive plan. And I know it's hard to hear. But I want us to think about this for a minute. I want us to just kind of marinate in this for a minute. Where, where's my heart when it comes to worship? Why am I here on Sunday morning? How much of, of God's glory do I really want to see? Does it really determine 
my preparation even for this Sunday morning? Does my life really revolved around that idea that, hey, I, I am saved by the grace of God. He is my king. He is the sovereign God of the world and the universe. And I treat him like he's my errand boy, like he's my, my psychiatrist, that he's just supposed to make me feel better. Give me a few words, so God, so I've got it from here now. Thank you very much. No. Do we ever, during the week, prepare by reading God's word and praying and asking him to break our hearts? Do we plan our life around the meeting of Yahweh? You know, well, times have changed. You know, well, things are busy. I mean, you know, we got things to do. We've got ballet and soccer and practice and dinners and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, God hasn't changed. He is still the sovereign God of the universe who demands all of our worship and deserves it. And we forget that. God help us. All of us. I'm with you on this. May God cause us to be transformed into his people who love him above all else. And that's hard. We can't do that. That's his grace. That's why prayer is so important. We must continually cry out, God, change our hearts. God, change our desires. Give us the affection of the holy. Let us long to be in your presence. Folks, by the way, this, if we are saved, if we do know the Lord, if we genuinely have been born again by his grace, he will consume our every thought for eternity. So what are we not preparing for that right now? Why are we not transforming our lives now to be ready for that? Okay. We need some light. So the next verse, here it is. Verses 18 through 21, we see a glimmer. In, the, in this dark time of spiritual decay, we see a flicker of God's grace shining. Verse 18 through 21 goes right to this after talking and contrasting between those wicked, selfish, self-centered, self-serving priests. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. You get these, this wickedness in the worship, this total contempt for God's order of things, this total selfishness of man. Ah, oh, but Samuel, the whole time that's going on and everybody's despairing. There, there are people who don't want to go to, to tabernacle anymore. Why go when we're going to have our, our sacrifices stolen? Why go and watch the, the immoral act of these priests? So while that's going on, though, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. It says a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So do you see the consistency? There's yes, there's darkness every year, but every year there's still light shining. It's Samuel. That little light flickering in that dark time. Year by year by year as the mother Hannah goes to see him and take him a little bit bigger coat each year and have to measure, boy, it's tough to try to measure, kind of figure it out. What's it going to be next year? We've got to hem this up. We've got to make an adjustment. Whatever, that's great as he grows. But underlying all of that is the fact that here's the consistent grace of God shining in the darkness as this young man grows. And look what it says. Then Eli 
would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. I know she wanted children, and God was faithful to give her one, and she was faithful to give him back like she said, but Lord, give her some children. That's what, the, that's what he would pray. Give her some, give, give him some children. So then they would return home, and indeed the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Now that didn't all happen at once. I mean, year after year, right? And, and, and every time Elkanah would pray, give him another child. Lord, give him some more children. And, and so through the years, three sons and two daughters. The grace of God. And look at this. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So, in the darkest times, God's grace still shines. Now, that ephod that he wore, by the way, is very important. This is very important that we remember that the ephod was a priestly garment that only members of the Levitical family, the priestly family, the Levites, could wear. And according to 1 Chronicles 6, Samuel is a member of this tribe. He is a priest. He is able to do this. This, this little six-year-old boy wearing this ephod, ministering to the Lord. It's amazing. Now, this is the last we see of Elkanah and Hannah in, in this book. But we'll continue to watch God work through Samuel. And isn't it interesting what you see? That's just how history goes, right? God raises up people for his purpose. Little insignificant things. Hey, she had a child, a, a little boy named Samuel. And then they pass off the scene. That was God's purpose, right, for his ultimate redemptive plan. But he uses each of us. We, we come, we're born, we live, we're faithful in the small thing that God has given us to be faithful in. And then we die and we go on. And what's that doing? That's God's ultimate plan, using each of us through the centuries to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Like somebody once said, preach the gospel and die. <laughs> That's how, that should be our purpose in life, right? We, we are born, saved by God's grace, to preach his good news, and then die. That should consume our lives. Again, this doesn't bode well with our materialistic world and all of your dreams and your, I know right now, you don't like me, some of you. Right? But, but, you know, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I, 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 I understand, but it's not about us. God made us for his glory. Well, I don't hear that. No, of course we don't hear that because we live in a society that has abandoned the very word of God. And so we're not hearing that he's the one holy that we should give our lives to and live our lives for. Look at this. We go back to Eli's worthless sons now. So we see this hope in the midst of the darkness, but now back to Eli's worthless, good-for-nothing, wicked sons. Not only were they committing liturgical sins, that means they were worshiping God with, in a sense, strange fire. They were doing their own thing. They weren't following or submitting to the order of God's worship. And they showed contempt for him in that way. But now we'll see the moral failure, the immoral sexual sin of these men, the blatant sin in the tabernacle. Verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So Exodus 38, 8, 
speaks of the women who served at the gate and the entrance of the tabernacle. Uh, it also mentions that from these women who, whatever that service was to keep the house of God, um, the makers of the brazen altar collected mirrors from them and used in the bowls that they, they made for those altars. So we know that there was a service that women did in the gates of the tabernacle. And yet these scoundrels, these priests that were supposed to represent the grace of God, were taking advantage of these women and committing sexual acts with them in the worship of God. Again, this is how deep the darkness goes during this time. I mean, they turned the tabernacle into a brothel, basically. I mean, a place of confessing sin became the place of committing sin. And again, this is true throughout history. Man is deceitfully wicked. <laughs> and this is all it's showing us. The darkness. Now verse 23 and 24. Too little too late is what we see here. Because we've got a father now, Eli, and you've got to think, where has Eli been all of these years? What's happening? His sons are just running, running havoc, wreaking havoc on the tabernacle and the people of Israel. Verse 23, and he said to them, why do you do such things? <laughs> For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons. I think they should have heard the word no a long time before now. But finally we see from this father, he says, no, my sons. It is not a good report that I hear of the people Hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now, this was common knowledge at the point. Again, everybody knew about these two worthless sons and their wickedness. And we can't help but see the effects of non-intentional parenting here. We, we, we wouldn't do justice to the text, and I would not be exegeting it properly if we didn't pause for a moment and address the idea of non-intentional parenting. Parenting. This system ordained by God to raise children. This is, this is the, the, the system. A man leaves his father and mother, cleaves them to his wife, they too shall be one, then they are fruitful and they multiply and they raise, they train up. And God has called and equipped parents to intentionally train and raise children for his glory. So I just want to Say, for, we got a lot of parents. We got a lot of parents on the way. Or, no, the baby's on the way. The parents are here. <laughs> but we got a lot of that happening, right? And it's fantastic. A lot of young parents. That we, uh, here's, here's four things every Christian parent must do. Four things every Christian parent must do. Number one, pray for our children's behavior, teach right behavior, model right behavior, and correct wrong behavior, and start over. Because it's a cyclical process. It never ends. We pray for our children. We, we have to begin with that. We've got to pray, God, break their little strong wills for your glory. Move in their hearts. Give them soft, pliable hearts that will obey. We've got to pray first and foremost for our children. Parents, if you're not praying for your children, you're failing them as a parent. Pray that God 
will break the hearts of your children and bring them to himself. Let them fall in love with Jesus. Pray that. Then we must teach right behavior. So praying is foremost. We begin with that. But then we've got to be proactive as parents. Intentional. So we need to teach right behavior. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, many have taken this verse out of context. You know, they raise their children in the church, under God's word. The child goes to church all the days that he has to. Graduates high school, goes to college, and all hell breaks loose. I mean, we've all heard these stories. And the parents say, wait a minute, what in the world? I mean, God's word's not true. Proverbs 22, 6, we trained them up the way he should go, and he's not supposed to depart from those teachings. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sure thing. It's a guarantee. Train up a child, have them memorize a few verses and some catechism and, 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 and all that, and, and their surefire going to be perfect. This verse is not saying that. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is older, he will not be able to get away from those teachings. They are still there. He may not be obeying them. He may not be living according to them, but God's word will not leave his heart. That's what it's saying. The teachings will forever be there. He will not be able to depart from them. He can't leave them. They're there. He's still accountable, though, to obey and to submit and to repent. You say, what do we teach? I mean, how do I? What? And it is, isn't it? Now, man, you have that first child. What an awesome responsibility. Huh. Look at this thing. I am responsible. And if you're a Christian, a believing parent, there's so much more added to that. I am responsible to God. This is, this is something he's given me to steward for his glory. And he commands me to train them up. Deuteronomy, teach your children. Right? Talk about these things in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening when you go to bed. Teach these things. So what do we teach them? How do we teach them good behavior? By the way, isn't it something? We live in a world that doesn't even know there's a good or bad behavior. There is no good or bad. There's no right or wrong. Whatever you want to do, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So what's the sources for teaching the right behavior? How do I do it? Well, there's things like the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible. That's what we do. The Bible. That is God's holy, inspired word. That is his holiness written for us. And this is what we have to ingrain in our children. We teach them the Bible. And catechism. This is the idea of catechism. By the way, catechesis simply means teach. Teach. And that's what we're commanded to do as parents. We should be catechizing our children for the glory of God, and we have to be intentional. So the word catechism, if we grab onto that, it gives intentionality to our parenting. It means I'm not just going to hope for the best. I'm not just going to stop. Most of us stop with that first one. Lord, bless these kids. Lord, help them. Lord, help them. And then we just go about our business, right? We, we, we're not intentional. We, we deal with problems as they arise instead of being proactive and intentional. But it takes discipline. It, and I'm not perfect at this. Trust me, by the grace of God, my kids are still alive. Amen. And they appear to love Jesus. 
I hope. It's genuine by his grace. But none of us are perfect at this. But it's here for us, plain and simple in the word of God. We've got to be intentional, taking time to do more than just pray for them. We have to teach them what is good, how to behave, what is wrong. So catechism, I, I, there's, there's the New City Catechism. There's other children's catechism books you can take and walk through your children every night. Uh, it's, it, it, those things, you're going to be amazed when you put things in your children, it's going to be there. I mean, Dr. Seuss books, our kids can quote them at 30 and 40 years old. We catechize them in Dr. Seuss. Nothing so wrong with that so bad, but I'm just saying we should be doing the same with the things of God. You'll be amazed at the effect you're having on your children when you're disciplined and consistent and intentional about giving them the training through a little catechism book that is based on the Word of God. And if you want some more ideas, parents, about what books are good, see Travis Mills, our, our family pastor, who has many resources in that area of good catechism books for your children. Then we must correct bad behavior. It's not enough to just teach good behavior. We must have the backbone, the courage, the boldness, and the love to correct bad behavior. Amen. Amen. What do I mean by that? I mean, what does the Bible say about this? There, the, discipline, by the way, is not just a negative thing. There's Discipline is not only punishment. We somehow put connected those words. Discipline is training. You can discipline a child and not use corporal punishment, especially capital punishment. Don't use capital punishment. That's, too, that's pretty severe. <laughs> but you, we can discipline our children and not have to resort to corporal punishment all the time. Discipline, training, using different methods, taking things away, different things that they realize, okay, I don't do that. But that does not mean that we totally abstain from the final punishment for wrong behavior in order to love them and make a point and to train them, to use that as a training tool. The Bible supports this. I know our culture doesn't. I mean, back in the days of the, what, 70s when Dr. Spock, not from Star Trek, but Dr. Spock, the great psychologist, came out and talked about we're going to wound our little ch children's inner person if we spank them and, and so forth and correct them too much, we have to build their self-esteem and tell them everything they're doing is great. You destroyed mommy's plant. That's fantastic. <laughs> you painted dad's new car purple. Oh, wonderful. Whatever. But the Bible does say that there are some behaviors. Now, we, again, there's so much I could say. This could be a whole sermon. I need to hurry up. But we don't just punish children for being children. That's, we got to watch that. If, if, we got to watch our own hearts dads and moms if we're distracted if we're upset if we're already angry about something and we're sitting at breakfast and we were late for a meeting or, or you're already frustrated and then johnny reaches for the waffles and knocks over your milk and it spills down your lap and you get it and you, and you begin to spank it that's that's sin on your part that's not right you're just he's just a child accidents happen so we got to be careful about how we approach this but the bible's plain about this in proverbs 13 24 it says Whoever spares the rod hates his son. The rod is paddle. In Hebrew, it really isn't, but I'm, that's what it means, a paddle. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Diligent, intentional, consistent, 
It's, it's, it takes time to do it, parents. I failed at this many times because I was just too selfishly busy to take the time to, to, to correct a wrong behavior. But if we're diligent to do that, we love our children. Proverbs 29, 15 says, the rod and reproof, so there's the, 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 the rod is just a tool in correction, reproof, give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And we've seen this in every store. I've seen it in many places. We had a child screaming at his mom, throwing things. Oh, you know, there's just no control. None. Because the rod of reproof, the rod and reproof were not ever used. And the child was left to himself. And all of us have little sinful hearts. And he brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 17, just discipline your son and he will give you rest. See, that's the antidote. How do I avoid? Again, young parents, you're thinking, I never want to be in that condition where I'm, I'm in, a, in a situation publicly where my children are bringing me shame because they're just totally ignoring any of my instruction or commands or disobeying. They're, they're just evil tirades and so forth. Well, the, the antidote is verse 29. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. So in a sense, if we are faithful to raise our kids and to teach them truth and then correct them when they're wrong and even use a, 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 a system of punishment to reinforce discipline, it's not just that we love them, it's also that we love ourselves in a way, right? Because we're going to reap the benefits. That's what the Bible's telling us here. Again, this doesn't mean they're, they're going to be perfect all the time. But this is the system that God has taught. And there are many, many verses we could talk about. Like the one, I know you're thinking, oh, you can't spank kids. It'll kill them. Well, the Bible says if you spank a child with a rod, he will not surely die. <laughs> and you'll deliver his soul from hell, is what it goes on to say. I mean, I, that was my defense, and I have seen many a spanking. But that was my first defense. You're killing me, you're killing me, I'm going to die! <laughs> and then... God revealed that verse. They shall not surely die. And again, I understand. We do live in a world where abuse is real. I understand. And this has nothing to do with child abuse. That's sin. To strike children out of anger, to continue to oppress them and bully them. Um, that, this is far from that. Matter of fact, I need to close with this point on this, on this point. That this is a last resort. This, and this doesn't have to be used all through your childhood. Matter of fact, if this is done correctly... You may only have to use this spanking or this correcting uh, measure only a few times in your children's life. Now, each child's different. My first child, Mackenzie McDaniel, I spanked maybe twice. First time, I was hurting as bad as she was. Second time, same thing, just, oh, and that was it. Every time we said something, yes, I'm so sorry, I'm wrong. And she was broken, and, and, and we just didn't, never had to go there again, ever. Lindsay, my second child, on the other hand, <laughs> wow. I mean, if she hadn't gotten married, she'd still be getting whoopings at home. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I'm really kidding on that. But there is a difference, right? And we won't even talk about Max. But the, the idea here is, folks, don't get me wrong on this. This is not, this is not a shortcut to making our kids right. It must be a final result in a discipline program. 
and done out of great care and love and not when you're angry. There, there must be guidelines to how you do this. Your kids have to know why it's happening, what it's for. This is the extent of the punishment, and that's it. And then we continue to discipline and love our children for the glory of God. Okay, Eli did not do that. That's the whole point of all of this. I know we took a sidetrack there, but obviously Eli did not teach his sons good behavior, and Eli had no spine to confront them about their bad behavior and to correct them until now when it's too little, too late. And we move to the sad part of verse 25. If someone sins against a man, and this is his plea to his sons now, sons, what are you doing? Don't do this. No, no. And then he, he says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You guys are sinning against the holy God. Who, who, you have no hope. And he goes on to say, they would not listen to the voice of their father. And here's the most chilling words in probably all the Bible. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. But they would not listen to the voice of their father because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. To death. Now let me go back a minute and talk about that verse real, real quick. The court scene. A human versus human in a court. That's what he's saying. If a man sins against a man, we have a court system, and God has set up arbitrators and his law to, to, to find out who's right or wrong. But if you sin against God, if you offend God, you have no hope. You're guilty. Courtroom case. Human versus God. You know who wins that case every time? God. That's what he's saying to his sons. Now, we have to deal with the last part of that verse because I know it brings theological questions up all over the place. They would not listen to the voice of their father because it was God's will to put them to death. Now, I want to make sure we don't read that too fast. Let that sink in. I want to read a quote from Dale Ralph Davis, what he says about this, which I totally agree with. He says, it is easy to read it too hastily, as if it said that Hophni and Phinehas did not listen to Eli, and consequently Yahweh decided to put them to death, but the text does not say that. It says Eli's sons did not listen to him because Yahweh had decided to put them to death. Hophni's and Phineas's resistance was not the rationale for Yahweh's judgment, but the result of his judgment. That's a lot. We don't have time. I know I'm already uh, kind of late, but that is what the Bible is saying here. We don't understand this. this. We're treading on sovereign ground here. And yet the truth is, folks, we look at America. People say, oh, people aren't listening to the Bible. People are rebelling against God sexually and and uh, morally and, and all the, the, the ways that he's laid down, he's going to judge us if they don't stop that. And yet I would respond, many of the things that we are seeing pervasive in our country today is the judgment of God. The very fact that we're not listening to God is already his judgment on the people who have forgotten him. And it happens to us many times. So again, the, the point is this. 
we shouldn't try to figure this verse out to whether the sovereignty of God is the responsibility of man. We can do that all day long. But you know, the first response we should all have about this verse is we should tremble. We should tremble and be reminded that there is a holy God who operates outside of our sphere without our permission. And we are subservient to him. And we are accountable to him. And he in his grace continues to shine a light of grace in our darkness if we will listen. And there's that light again, verse 26. Right after all of that, look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in nature and in favor, stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So again, this, this contrasting, right? Oh, the evil, evilness of Hophni and Phinehas, but Samuel's faithful. Oh, the judgment coming down upon them, uh, but Samuel's faithful. He's still growing. He's growing behind the scenes, quietly growing. You know, God is working. Here's what we got to remember as Christians. No matter how bad this world is, no matter how convoluted it is, no matter how confused we get, we must rest on the fact that God is sovereignly working his plan in the background. He is growing his people behind the scenes. And do you know it's silent? All you hear is the bombastic sins of Hophni and Phinehas and, and the public display of their evilness toward God, and it drowns out the slow, quiet growth of Samuel. God is growing him in the background. Growth is quiet. You don't hear your kids growing. I never remember laying in bed with my wife and saying, what's that noise? Oh, that's just Max growing. <laughs> you don't hear growth. It's behind the scenes, but it's happening. You see the results all the time. You're like, wow, look at this. When was this happening? All the time. God was always working this plan. He's always shining his light in the darkness. That's what we rest in. Finally, let's read verses 27 through 34 very quickly. The final judgment pronounced on these wicked sons. And there came a man of God. Who is this? By the way, who is this? We don't know. Amen. Granddaughter amens me. We don't know who this is. The Bible doesn't say. But you know what it shows us? God doesn't need us. He's got men everywhere. God raises up people when and where he needs them. He's sovereign. And here's sovereignly. He, we've got a guy out of nowhere that comes. He's a man of God, it says. He comes to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. That's powerful. What a chilling indictment that we favor our children or our wife or our job or our career above God. But he goes on to say, therefore, and here it is, therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Verse 27 through 34. Behold, the days are coming. So here's again the pronouncement of judgment. 
a prophecy. The days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. This means I'm taking the priesthood away from your family. You're done. So that there will be not an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Prophecy of total annihilation for Eli's family. And the sign will be that soon both your sons will die on the same day. Now that's a lot to handle. So we're back in the dark place now, right? I know. And we're also late, but that's okay. Because here's the, here's the, here's the good news. In the darkest times, the grace of God still shines. Verses 35 and 36, look at this. This is still the prophecy. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver of, uh, or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. And this is fulfilled in two ways. Of course, we have the immediate contextual fulfilling of this that happens. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 2 when Zadok replaces Abathar, who is the house of Eli, who was the priest, but then he is replaced by Zadok as priest, and no more does the house of Eli have any access to the priesthood. And they literally do. They say, we were priests, let us work. No, you're cut off. God keeps his word here on this. But here's what we want to really look at. So that was fulfilled with Zadok, yes, earthly-wise. He was a, a, a priest who rose up, was faithful to God. But it goes so much further than that, you see, because this was ultimately fulfilled, eternally fulfilled in Christ, our great high priest. When God says, I will provide myself a high priest who is faithful to me. You see, Christ is the one who is truly faithful to the Father. He's the one who does according to the, Father, uh, the Father's heart in all matters of life, right? He is our high priest who not only purchased us by his blood, but ever lives to make intercession for us. So this is our hope. Again, this is the ultimate fulfilling. This was God's plan by raising up Samuel way back in that dark time and everything else he has done through the years when we see the darkness and a baby is born. Moses, Samuel, David, John the Baptist, and ultimately Christ. They were all types of the final baby that would be born, that would be the savior of the world, Christ. This is our hope, right? He's the one who has come into our darkness and has shown a great light. Let's rejoice in that. I mean, no matter how bad it is right now, if you are in Christ, 
you are safe. You are in the light, no matter how dark it gets. This is our hope. Isaiah 9-2, I'll close with this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has shown a great light. This is our hope. Take heart, my friends. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the reminder that all through history, what we're living now is not new. There is no new false teaching. There are no new sins. There is no new rebellion towards you. It's always been since the beginning that man's heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and rebellious. And Father, it's also not new that there are times when you graciously shine your light in that darkness and you spare your people and you bring redemption. And Father, we are so grateful for the ultimate shining of that light 2,000 years ago on Calvary when Christ died once for all for our sins to give us everlasting light in this darkness. So Father God, I pray that we will rest in him and that we'll glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.